All right. What's up, everybody? Good? Good, good, good. It's good to be together. It's good to be together. It's good to be uh, here uh, sharing God's Word. Uh, We're going to be in Mark 10, so meet me in Mark 10. If you're new to our church, my name is Mike, one of the pastors here uh, in our church, and we are in a series called Following Jesus, a very creative sermon series title. Um, uh, But we wanted to make it simple because that's what this series is about. It's following Jesus and we're studying uh, the life and ministry of Jesus and how he prepared his disciples uh, to represent him in the gospel of Mark. Before we get there, you heard uh, Pastor Drew mention our Friday prayer gathering. I do want to encourage you to come. Uh, We've been doing these prayer gatherings. Uh, Matter of fact, just by show of hands, how many of you have attended one of the prayer gatherings we've had over the last couple weeks? A lot of you have been there. Yeah, yeah. If, you, if you've come, you know why she's, she's making noise over there because uh, it's been pretty live, man. Um, we uh, preached a sermon, Pastor David, on Seeking God a couple weeks ago. That next morning we were like, hey, we need to call the church to really do that uh, in a more intentional way. So let's just put the word out and see who can come together to pray tonight. And 700 people showed up. And, uh, and, and the Lord was moving in such a unique way that we just kept it going every night that week. Um, and uh, it was just such a rich, powerful time. And so things like that have been popping up all over the country. Some of you have heard about what happened at Asbury University. We shared about that where a group of college students came together after a chapel service, started praying together, about 15 to 20 of them. In a couple hours, it was several hundred students, uh, and they'd never stopped. 24 hours a day for 12 days straight. They were in prayer and worship And before it was all over, in a town of 6,000 people, they estimate over 30,000 people had flooded onto this college campus to just spend time in prayer and worship. And it caused a lot of people in church world to ask, is this revival? Like, is God sending revival? Is revival, like, breaking out? And those of you who are new to Christianity or you're not a Christian, you're like, this is why I don't fool with y'all crazy Christian people. What are you talking about right now? Right? Uh, but it caused people to ask then, okay, what is revival? What is legitimate revival? And one of my favorite definitions of revival is by a man named Richard Lovelace. He wrote a book called Dynamics of Spiritual Life. In 1972, I was not alive, but the book was recommended to me by somebody who was alive back then. And, uh, and so I read it, and uh, he has my favorite definition of revival. Here it is. He said, revival is, uh, he, de- he defines revival not as a special season of extraordinary religious excitement. He says, rather, revival is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which restores the people of God, here it is, to normal spiritual life after a period of corporate decline. The reason it's my favorite definition of revival is because I think that's what you see in Scripture. When you see revivals in Scripture, when you look at revivals, and legitimate revivals in church history, what you see is there's this period of decline where God in his word has called Christians and caused the church to live here. And yet over time, they compromise and they drift and now they settle and become comfortable living here. And God, the Holy Spirit, moves and he works in a way through drawing them to repentance through a season of confession, through a season of intentional and consistent prayer. And then he begins to restore them, not to something sensational and dramatic, although it might appear that way, but he actually restores them to the way they should have been living the whole time. And in my opinion, the civil rights movement was a revival. 
where God used a corner of the American church to call the broader church back to normal spiritual life. So it's not always in the ways that we think about revival where it's all this crazy stuff happening and all that. No, it is God in his kindness and in his mercy calling his people back to the way he has designed and revealed for them to live in scripture. And so I honestly don't give a lot. I give zero thought to is revival breaking out in America. We'll let the historians call that. I do give a lot of thought, though, to what God is doing in the life of our church. And so what is God doing? He's doing a, a lot of things. But just in my own personal just and pastoral reflection, just journaling through and trying to like, God, what are you doing? Because there's been so much happening in our church family over the last couple of weeks in our prayer gatherings and spilling out of those prayer gatherings. And I think God is doing a couple of things that I just want to mention briefly that will just set us up as we go into to Mark 10. Number one, I think God is re- increasing our faith. I think he's been increasing our faith. The disciples prayed for that. That father you remember in scripture said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I think God is doing that in the life of our church. And you see it in our prayer gatherings, the way that we're praying, the things that we're praying for, and then the testimonies of how God has been answering prayer, not just in general, but somebody on this Wednesday, right, coming and testifying to how God answered a prayer that we were praying publicly the previous Wednesday. I think God is increasing our faith, helping us to pray bold prayers, but then reminding us through people's testimonies that he answers bold prayers. I think God is intensifying our desire for him in a Psalm 63 way. Psalm 63, in a dry and weary land where there is no water, the psalmist says, God, and notice, my wife pointed this out and called a worship a couple weeks ago. Notice he doesn't say, in a dry and weary land where there is no water, I long for water. He says, in a dry and weary land where there is no water, he says, God, I long for you more than anything else. And I think God is intensifying our desire for him. I think you see it in our prayer gatherings and our worship gatherings. This intensified desire for the presence of God, to enjoy the presence of God, to be aware of it, to not just experience God's presence, but to express our gratitude for his presence and his goodness and his majesty. Y'all have been coming ready to worship. Ready. We're not done. We're going to worship some more today. So if you weren't ready when you came in, you got about 28 minutes and 33 seconds, right, to get yourself ready. Intensifying our desire for him. I think God has been deepening our fellowship with one another as a church. Come on, man. Honestly, I'm I'm tired of just doing church. If we're not going to be family, let's stop talking about it. I'm really trying to live in a community that reflects what we see in Scripture. And I think a lot of people have been desiring that. And I think one of the things that the Lord has been doing by his spirit is deepening our fellowship with one another through these prayer gatherings. In one way, it's just through the honesty of our confession, not just to God, but to one another. Y'all, some of y'all have been in these prayer gatherings where people are, you know how people know how to confess stuff, right? they like, here are all my sins, the most embarrassing one, the one that's socially acceptable, I'm going to confess this one. No, people have been confessing real things. Real things. And so as we've been more honest with one another, taking off the mask and being like, I am going to let you see what's really happening in my life, the sin that's really weighing me down, the challenges that, are, that I'm really struggling with. I think God is deepening our fellowship. And in that, our affection for one another seems to be growing. 
I see it in so many ways. I think he's increasing our faith and intensifying our desire and deepening our fellowship. And then I think he's restoring our rhythms, the rhythms that he's designed for us to experience his love and his grace and his power that we see in Scripture. I think many of us have settled into more kind of American rhythms than biblical rhythms. And because of that, we're not experiencing the fullness of life that God wants us to experience. You cannot experience the life of Jesus until you embrace the lifestyle of Jesus. And that's what we see in the book of Acts, the church orienting their life together around the rhythms and prioritizing the rhythms that God has laid out in Scripture. Not in a legalistic way, not because that's just a religious thing to do, but because like in these rhythms, he's like, I've designed for you to live in the fullness of who I've made you to be. And so we are gathering together every night. Gathering together right now on Friday, giving up Friday nights for two and a half hours of prayer. We were praying and worshiping this Friday night, and I looked around the room, and I literally had this thought. I was like, yo, if God isn't real, we really look ridiculous right now. <laughs> People were on the, on the floor, lifting their hands, singing, celebrating, praising God. People weeping in confession. But this is how God designed us to live. I'm not saying we got to get together every day. But what I am saying, though, is that some of us have settled for this very knockoff version of the church that doesn't actually reflect biblical Christianity, and we're missing out because of it. And so when God does a work in us like he's been doing, it's never just in us or for us. It is always ultimately aimed to overflow from us, to be blessing to other people around us. And that's what we see in Mark 10, because here's the thing. If we as a church and if you really want to experience the fullness of life that God has for you, if you really want to see how God could use your life, then it's going to require something. It's going to require you to think about your life differently. Some of you have heard a version of this quote before. Thomas Merton said this. He wrote this. He said, people may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to find once they reach the top that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. And for some of you, that describes your life. Where we can externally look like we're successful, even feel successful, because we're elevating higher and higher in our career, in relationships, in money, whatever it is. And we can do all of that and get to a point in life where we realize, I've been aiming in the wrong direction. I've been climbing a ladder on the wrong wall. And so here's my today. I'm just going to summarize what I think the Lord is saying to us through Mark 10. And we're just going to walk through Mark 10 briefly. And then I want, to, I want to give you three questions to reflect on, to just frame a time of prayer together. If you're taking notes, just write this one sentence down. This is what I believe God is saying to us. And I want to lead us to think about how the Holy Spirit might be applying it to us individually. Listen, Jesus is calling us. He's inviting us to trade in our vision for our lives for his vision for our lives. Jesus is inviting us. He's inviting you to trade in your vision for your life for his vision for your life. And one of the things you'll see as you get to know God more and more 
and you hear testimonies of people who walk with him and you read through scripture, one of the things you realize is it's not really a trade at all. There's no risk, really. There's no sacrifice, really, at the end of the day. Why? Because God's vision for your life is better than your vision for your life. So we see that in the lives of the disciples. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. We're going to read through, make some comments, and then I want us to reflect on three questions from this passage. Let's dive into Mark. Y'all ready? Doesn't sound too excited. It's just God's word. It's just the word of the Lord. That's all. Y'all ready? All right. Let's do it. Mark 10, verse 35. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, came up to Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Pause. <laughs> They're basically asking Jesus to sign a blank check. It's like when my kids come up to me and say, Dad, if I ask you a question, will you say yes? I'm like, what kind of, where, where, did you, where did they teach you this at? This is what the disciples are doing. And so Jesus responds, verse 36, and said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I don't want you to just hear, because some of us are familiar with this passage. I don't want you to just hear this passage just audibly. I want you to hear it worshipfully. I want you to hear it as if it truly is God's word and that the spirit is speaking to you through it. So I want you to hear this question and imagine Jesus asking you this question right now in this season of your life. What do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that question? Do you even feel comfortable giving Jesus an honest answer? There's only two times in Scripture where Jesus asked this question, and both of them are recorded right here in Mark chapter 10. He asked, what do you want me to do for you, to James and John here in verse 36? And then just there in your Bibles, you scroll down to to verse 51, which we're going to study together next week. But look at what Jesus says. There's a, a, a blind man who's crying out to Jesus. Jesus calls for him, and then Verse 51, Jesus said to him, same question, what do you want me to do for you? And Jesus heals him. He regains his sight. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you to the blind man? And Jesus answers the blind man and says, yes. But as we'll see in a minute, to the disciples, he basically says, what's wrong with y'all? Pastor Eric Saunders, we were talking about this passage in a meeting, and he had this insight. He said something that it just it blew me away, and it's just been ministering to me all week. And I was like, I need you to write that down and send it to me because I'm going to plagiarize. And it's not plagiarism because I'm giving him credit, okay? <laughs> Listen, I'm going to quote him directly. Listen to what uh, um, Eric said. He said, it seems like, so why would Jesus ask that question? He said, it seems like that reveals that Christianity is not a religion that requires us to hide our real desires. That we have to ignore what our heart actually wants. It seems that Jesus is fine with us having our desire on the tip of our tongue and to have the kind of relationship with him where we can honestly make it known to him. 
He says, it's crazy though that Jesus fulfills Bartimaeus' desire, the blind man, but redirects James and John's desire to something better. And then listen to what he says. He says, my relationship with God has to include the capacity to be honest with him about my needs. I can't not share for fear of being disappointed, so I need to be honest with him about my needs. But my relationship also has to have room for trust. That God is either going to fulfill this or he's going to give me what I would have asked for if I knew all that he knew. We trust God enough to be honest about what we want, but we also trust him enough to be satisfied with how he responds. Well, the disciples are just blatantly honest about what they want. They know by this point that Jesus is the Messiah, and they are excited about and anticipating the day when Jesus leads a revolution against the Roman Empire and overthrows their oppressors and and establishes the messianic kingdom that they've been waiting for. And so look at what they ask. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 37, and they said to him, "Grant uh, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Or at least they're being honest. You picture a royal banquet, right, where the seating arrangements are based on your status. So the, the closer you are to the king, the more prominent you are. We see this even in our modern day politics, right? You look at a presidential address, right? And let me tell you who's not going to be on stage, y'all, right? <laughs> me either. Although some of y'all be having some secret jobs that you don't be talking about, but but. When you look at a presidential address, who's up on stage? It's dignitaries up on stage, right? It's people who have high standing, a high status in the government or in the military. Same thing here. And so the disciples are asking for the VIP seats. They want to be in the position of prominence and recognition. They want to be seen and admired and successful by worldly standards. Why? Because so often our sense of self-worth is based on our status in the eyes of other people. Being close to Jesus isn't enough. They want to be close to Jesus in such a public way that they're able to appear to be prominent as well. And what's so crazy about their request is what Jesus had just been talking about right before this passage. So let me take you back up because you always got to look at the context, right? Let me take you back up in verse 32 so you just see the flow of the context and how ridiculous the disciples look right now. Look at verse 32. It says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to them. Now, this is the third time in Mark's gospel that Jesus is getting ready to predict his suffering. Jesus says, verse 33, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And the next thing James and John do is come to him and say, Jesus, if I ask you a question, will you say yes? (laughs) We want to sit at your right and your left, Jesus. Jesus is like, 
Did y'all not listen to anything I just said? I'm about to go to Jerusalem, spit on, flogged, mocked, killed. You're asking me about glory. And Jesus responds to them in verse 38. And he said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What Jesus is talking about here is his suffering. It's imagery. He's not talking about Christian baptism. The cup, it represents the fact that he's getting ready to like take all of it, pointing ultimately to God's wrath that he's going to take in our place for our sins. He's like, you looking at, what is the king's cup called? A goblet or what, what is it? A chalice, there we go. A goblet, what is that? That's like candy or something. <laughs> He's like, you looking at the chalice, it looks all blinged out. You, you're like, I want one of those. But are you ready to drink its contents? Jesus is like, I'm getting ready to take on all. All of God's purposes for my life, which include me willingly going to the cross. And baptism is not talking about Christian baptism. He's just talking about the, the literal imagery here of being fully submerged. He's saying, I'm not just about to dip my toe into suffering. I'm going to be fully submerged. He says, are you able to really follow me? In verse 39, they said to him, we are able. Noted, Jesus. And Jesus said to them, they don't understand. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit in my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Listen, Jesus is basically saying to them, following me will look different than you think. He's saying, you you think that this is the road to prominence and prestige. Follow me is going to look different than you think. Because you don't fully understand yet what's about to happen to me, although I've been trying to tell you. In fact, every time, all three times Jesus predicts his suffering, right after that, he has a conversation with the disciples because he has to correct their motives and redirect their focus every single time. It's like they don't want to believe that the kingdom of God requires surrender in that way. They want the crown without the cross. They're not going to have to take on divine suffering like Jesus did. That's Jesus's cup to take. But they are going to have to follow Jesus in human suffering for the sake of the gospel. And so James, right, is going to be the first martyr. He's going to have his head cut off for spreading the gospel and being a follower of Jesus. John is going to be the last martyr. He's literally going to be in exile on a prison island, isolated. Jesus says, you've misunderstood what it's going to look like and require for you to follow me. So verse 41, the rest of the disciples, the ten, heard it. And they began to be indignant at James and John. Like, they're salty. They're like, yo, how in the world are you 
like trying to angle your way. This is like some real housewife stuff. Like how are you really trying to position yourself and like all this stuff? It sounds like D.C. though, right? How are you trying to posture yourself in a way to kind of, they're angry at James and John. And then Jesus says to them, he calls to them in verse 42, don't miss that beautiful picture of grace that as selfish as the disciples are being, that Jesus doesn't just cast them away. He calls them in closer because he says, I'm not done with you yet. You're a work in progress. Your motives are embarrassing. I still have plans for you. And he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. This is not just being in leadership. This, the Greek is very, very strong here. It's saying they impose their authority in harsh and selfish ways. He says, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you, you must be, whoever uh, will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Let me rephrase this in just simple terms. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, you have to become the kind of person who is willing to serve anybody. You have to be willing to become the kind of person who is willing to joyfully put others ahead of yourself. The image that kept coming to my mind as I was studying this was a seesaw. One side got to go down, other side goes up. So have that picture in your mind. Jesus is saying when you come to a situation or you're in a relationship, when you show up and you have a choice, am I going to use people, lower them in order to exalt myself, or am I going to willingly and joyfully lower myself, humble myself in order to exalt and bring blessing to and serve other people? Am I willing to bring blessing to other people even if it makes me look like I'm less than? Am I willing to be the one to take the L in order to serve and bless this other person? Jesus saying, the people who follow me are going to literally follow me. They're going to be, they're going to become the kind of people that, that say, I am willingly and joyfully lowering myself as a servant, ultimately God's servant, but that's not what Jesus says. He says to become a servant and like a slave to other people. This isn't oppression. This is you willingly and gladly making the choice to follow your Savior and to allow yourself to be used in a good and healthy and God-glorifying way to bring blessing to other people. And he's saying that is how you're supposed to live your whole life. So what is God saying to us in this? Well, I want to go back to that one sentence I said at the beginning that was just so clear to me in just prayer and preparation for this message. 
And it's something that I think all of us need to wrestle with, just wrestle with the Holy Spirit in community to say, God, what does this mean for me? And here's the sentence again. I think Jesus is calling us, inviting us to trade our vision for our life for his vision for our life. To not just look around. You know how some people are? Like when they, when they see other people running, they just run too. You don't know why. You're just like, I don't, whatever they're running from, I ain't, ain't about to get me. You know what I'm saying? Well, we do the same thing culturally, y'all, where we see everybody running in a direction or everybody setting up their ladders on certain walls, and we just say, oh, okay. And Jesus is saying, no, not as a follower of me. No, you ask me what wall you're supposed to put your ladder on. We got to trade our, we, we have a vision of our life. And Jesus is inviting us to trade that vision in for his vision for our life. And so here's some questions I just want to ask you to help you just reflect on what this might mean for you. And I want this to lead us in a time of just prayer. Prayer, before we take the Lord's Supper, before we respond, just to lay our lives before the Lord. Here's three questions for you. If you're taking notes, this might be helpful for you this week. Number one, in what ways are you chasing or craving your own glory? See, to glorify something means to put a spotlight on it, to show people how valuable or special that thing is. That's what it means to glorify God. It means to put the spotlight on him. Now, we want people around us to see how valuable and how special God is. Well, here's the tricky thing. It's not that the disciples didn't want Jesus to be glorified. In fact, look at what they say in verse 37. They said to Jesus, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So they're not trying to rob Jesus of glory. It's not that they wanted to steal his shine. It's that they wanted to share his shine. Like John says in John 3.30, I must decrease and he must increase. And the disciples are like, this is John the Baptist talking. The disciples are like, nah, John the Baptist, because I saw what that did for you. Jesus, can I increase as you increase? <laughs> I think this is how a lot of people see many of us as Christians just in our culture and society today. We're just so focused on increasing and accumulating more power and more influence at the expense of the people that we're actually called to humble ourselves and serve. The disciples have mixed motives, just like we all do. See, some of us are chasing our own glory. We, we were chasing the spotlight. We're chasing more and more success from a worldly standard. We're chasing the approval of our family. We're chasing likes on Instagram. We're chasing whatever it is. We're chasing our own glory. But here's the trickier one. 
Some of us, because we know the Christian answers, we may not be chasing our own glory in the same way that everybody else in the world is, but even in the good things that we do, we're craving our own glory. And this explains why some of us, honestly, the good things that we do end up causing us bitterness and resentment because we haven't released that pursuit of glory. So we want to do what's right and we want to serve people and we want to honor God, but we actually want to do it in a way where we still are able to get some shine. And that ends up creating in us when we don't get that shine, a sense of bitterness and resentment because we're not just okay being servants. We want to be the kinds of servants that sit at the right and the left. This shows up for me in ministry, y'all. Because I've given my life, time out, sidebar, I'm not like some of these other pastors that could like go out after this career and like get rich. I have no delusions of that. If I don't preach or whatever, my kid's going to die, okay? I have no other marketable skill, okay? So I'm locked in, I'm stuck, okay? But still. It's like I, we make sacrifices in ministry to, to serve and the pastor and to give our lives to the church and all that. And you know what? I have to fight so hard against the craving in my own heart for glory. You can be doing all the right things and it can become a prideful thing to you. You can give up your career and stay at home with your kids and that be a way for you to still crave glory. Externally, it looks like, oh, look, I'm taking the L so my kids can be elevated. Internally, craving glory. And one of the hardest things, right, is in this area, one of the first questions people ask you is, what do you do? And oftentimes that's when you'll feel it. In what ways... Are you chasing or craving your own glory? Here's question number two. How's God challenging you to become more of a servant in this season of your life? Maybe it's family and friends. Making yourself more available, not being so busy that you're not available to serve the friends in your life or your parents or your kids or in your marriage. Husbands, Jesus calls us to give ourselves up, literally to prioritize the desires and needs of our wives at our own expense and to do it with joy. Maybe it's at your job. Maybe God is challenging you to become more of a servant at your job. Maybe it's seeing your job as service. Maybe it's using the leadership position that God has given you, not like everybody else uses leadership to just demand and have people serve you and to just finesse your way into an even greater position. Maybe it's for you to look at the seesaw and say, I'm going to use and leverage the position and the power and the access God has given me in order to build other people up, to mentor them, to help build up their career, to bring blessing to them. Maybe it's here in church. Some of you have needed a season to rest and recharge. 
Some of you who have showed up from other churches, you know I've said that to you. You came from difficult situations, church drama, whatever. Or I'm sorry that you left church drama to come here over the last three years if you've seen any church drama in our church. But I've told some of y'all, don't do anything. Sit back and get recharged. But how long are you going to do that? Because there there's others of us who come week in and week out, been coming for two years, three years, five years. And you're missing out on the opportunity to see how God could use you to actually experience God's vision for your life. Because you just kind of come in and out and you see ministry directory after ministry directory and announcement after announcement. And it's going to be a whole ministry fair in the lobby. And you're going to go take a cupcake and then still leave. (laughs) And I don't want you to hear condemnation in that. I want you to hear an invitation that we're about a mission here as a church. And so collectively together, man, we scrape our little gifts together and our resources together and our time together like loaves and fish, and we give it collectively to Jesus to say, Jesus, would you glorify yourself through our efforts? When I stand outside with an orange vest on as, as, a, as a parking team member, Jesus, would you glorify yourself? When I stand up to sing, which I will never do, Jesus, would you glorify yourself? When I serve one of our children or serve somebody with special needs or stand at the welcome center or lead a church group, Lord Jesus, would you just glorify yourself, not just through me, but through us as we use our gifts and we serve together. Some of you need to take that step. Plug. Easter is a great time to start. (laughs) Serve on one of our Easter teams. Some of you is in the community. We live in Montgomery County or PG County or or Howard County, wherever you live, Frederick County. And we live in our communities as consumers. Like everybody else. How do I get into this zip code with this school district or, whatever, or wherever, where the Wegmans is going to be or where the, whatever, and that's not bad. But Jesus calls us to be servants, not just individually, but together. And so how is he calling us to become more, to become servants, to, to have be more service-minded in the way that we bring blessing to the community? That's I'm so excited about Paul Hoffer, our new outreach director, who's been just going around the county, meeting with people and, and, and researching and pulling together the needs and opportunities. And in a couple of months, we'll have a new outreach strategy to roll out for you to be able to plug into and to serve. So many ways that God might be challenging you to become more of a servant in this season of your life. And some of you are doing that and you're serving in ways that are hard and difficult. And what you need to hear in this is not challenge. What you need to hear is comfort from God that he sees you. That he's making you more of a servant like Jesus as you are faithfully serving him in this season of your life and all the ways that he's calling you to serve. And you need to hear him saying, well done. I know it's hard, but well done. Here's the last question. We'll wrap up here. How do you need God to serve you right now? How do you need God to serve you right now? And here's, here's what I mean. John 13, this scene that you're probably familiar with where Jesus is about to wash the disciples' feet. He takes a towel, he wraps it around his waist like a slave. And he gets on his knees and he's going through and he's washing the disciples' feet. And he gets to Peter and Peter is like, nah, dog. That's not in the original language. That's not. But he's like, no, Jesus, you're not washing my feet. 
And Jesus says to him, unless I wash your feet, you will have no share in the kingdom of God. And so Peter is like, all right, then give me a bubble bath then. You know what I mean? I know. I'm sorry. That was like, the imagery is just not. But he literally is like, all right, then wash my head and wash my hands and wash my feet. He's like, all right. And what Jesus is doing is he's pointing to his ultimate act of service, which is that he's going to go to the cross. And he's not going to put a towel around his waist. He's going to be stripped of all of his clothing. And he's not just going to lower himself to wash feet. He's actually going to die on the cross and be lowered into the grave. And he's going to rise so that the disciples and everybody else who puts trust in him can be washed of their sin and forgiven and have eternal life. And that's why Jesus, when he looks at the disciples who are jockeying for position and clinging to their vision for their life, he looks at them and says, if you're going to follow me, here's what it's going to look like. Verse 45, he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A relationship with God begins with you surrendering and humbling yourself to be served by the one who humbled himself for you. By saying, I need to be forgiven, I need to be washed clean, and the only way that can happen, Jesus, is by me receiving what you've done for me on the cross. And some of you need to make that decision. You need to make a decision for the first time. Like, Jesus, I I don't want to play games, I don't want to negotiate. I still have some questions, but I know enough. I know that I'm a sinner and I cannot make myself clean. And I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sins, in my place. You rose from the dead. And, Jesus, I'm casting all of my weight on you. Because you came to serve me eternally. Jesus, I want you to do it. I want to be forgiven. I want you to lead me. I want my life to be a reflection of you. Jesus, I'm inviting you in. I want to begin that kind of relationship. Some of you need Jesus to serve you in that way. Others of you who have already done that, there are real needs and pains and struggles in your life. And you need to be reminded that Jesus is not done serving. This is the essence of prayer. It's us humbling ourselves to come to him and to say, I need you. I need help. I can't carry this weight on my own. I don't know what to do. And God says, I'm still at your disposal. It sounds blasphemous, but it's from God's word. And he says, I'm a good father. I'm your shepherd. And I want to serve you. And I want to bless you. I want to provide for you. I want to guide you. So maybe you need God to serve you today by saving you from sin. But maybe you need God to serve you today by helping you in some other way in, in your life. And so I want, I want to give us some space to respond to the Lord. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to take some time just in prayer. Just in a couple of ways. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, and we're going to sing. But I don't want you to miss what God is trying to do in you and for you, but also the vision that God has for what he wants to and could do through you if you would surrender to him in that relationship, in that career path, in our church family, in whatever way he's calling you to serve.
So here's how I want you to start. And you can kneel, you can come down front, you can sit wherever you're sitting and whatever you're comfortable with. Because I just want you to start with just confession. And I just want you to confess to for that first question. What are some of the ways that you find yourself chasing or, if you're honest, really craving glory? Chasing or craving glory. Constantly want to climb higher, constantly wanting the spotlight to be on you. Or where are you really struggling because that spotlight is not on you? And where might be God calling you to serve? How is he challenging you to become more of a servant? Maybe he's calling you to take a step that is becoming clearer to you. I just want to invite you to take some time between you and the Lord. Or you can even confess it in prayer with somebody that you came in with. Here in Overflow, I want to just give you space to just lay that before the Lord. And then we'll continue together. Take a moment with the Lord.